Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I want to begin this morning by reading our text. So if you're in Ephesians, chapter 4, we're going to pick up at verse 17. Let me read all the way through verse 24. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says this, Now this I say to you, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's common for us to hear in our culture and our society that uh, we need to be authentic individuals, And one of the common refrains we hear in our culture, and that's pumped at us from a variety of different angles and places, is that for us to be truly authentic, we need to be true to ourselves. You need to be true to who you are. And by that, typically we mean you need to be true to the inner desires of your heart. You need to do what you want to do. You need to do what you need to do for you. Now, if you just pause and just think about that statement being true to yourself for a minute, you'll you'll see probably that that is fraught with all kinds of problems, the least of which is trying to define and understand which self it is you're supposed to be true to. And did you think about that? When somebody says be true to yourself, you have to ask that question, which self are we talking about here? Are we talking about myself currently, right now, in this moment, or am I thinking about myself down the road in the future? Am I thinking about the self that I think I am, or am I talking about the self that I want to be? The statement is truly unhelpful, and it actually goes against the grain of Scripture. Nowhere are we called to be true to ourselves. In fact, the Apostle Paul here gives us the only two categories that we can understand ourselves within, and that is the old self and the new self. This is going to drive you crazy, isn't it? It's driving me crazy. Let's see if it works any better. We had some technical issues in the first service too. We thought we had them fixed, but uh, hopefully this does it. All right, everybody still with me? Yeah? All right, let's get back to God's word, right? All right, Paul here in the book of Ephesians, he gives us the two categories we need to think through in understanding who we are. And he talks about the old self and the new self. And it all begins really for us and with the Apostle Paul and with the Spirit of God in understanding our need to change. There must be, and there is a call to fundamental change in our lives to put off the old and to put on the new, to understand which self truly defines us. See, we all struggle with identity, Every one of us struggles with identity, and we will, likely, to the day we die. Some of you are actually here this morning, and you're struggling with this question in a very personal way, and maybe you have been for some time. You're asking the question, well, who am I? What defines me? Is it my career? Is it my, my past life that I once lived? Is it my future, the decisions I make? Is it my bank account? And 
Is it my reputation? I mean, how, how am I supposed to understand who I am and where I find my value and my worth? Some of you in here are followers of Jesus Christ, and you know who you are. You know that your identity is in Jesus Christ, but you aren't right now walking as if that's true. You're not living in a way that's consistent with who you have become in Jesus Christ. And Paul speaks to us on this issue this morning. And he gives to us the process for change and the process for living out of the identity that we have been given in Jesus Christ to become practically who we have been made positionally in Jesus Christ. And he begins with this. First, if you want to do this, you want to change this area of your life, you need to end the old self. You need to end the old self. In verse 17 through 19, Paul paints this picture of identity in a, in a previous life and existence for the people he's writing to in the church. And one thing is, is true, that you cannot have an encounter with Jesus and leave unchanged. It is, it is impossible to have a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and remain unchanged. That's why there is, at the beginning in verse 17, such a strong and urgent exhortation here to the church and to our hearts even this morning. Look again at verse 17. Look what Paul says. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. There is a strength here of urgency. Paul is pressing into our hearts a reality that we must learn to embrace. He speaks on behalf of the Lord as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does this because he knows that to know Jesus Christ truly is to be transformed and changed by him. It is to affect all areas of life. I just want you to think of your life for a moment. Think of the last three to five years. You should be able to have enough information to kind of look back and, and just broadly look at your life over the last three to five years. I think it would be fair to say that you've changed. I hope that's true. You're not the same person now that you were back then. For some of us, it's been a radical, life-altering change, but every single one of us could look back over the last three to five years, and we could see, I hope, visible change in our lives. Now, the question for you who are followers of Jesus Christ, as you look back over your life, whether it's one year, two years, three years, five years, or ten years, here's the question you need to be asking. Have I been changing to look more and more like Jesus Christ or not? Do I look more like Jesus Christ this year than I did last year? And do I look more like Jesus Christ this year than I did five years ago? If you have encountered Jesus, you will be different from who you used to be. But not only that, if, if you've truly encountered Jesus Christ, you'll be different from the world around you. Notice how Paul speaks to the church here. He says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, it's helpful to understand that in the context, Paul is writing the church in Ephesus, and the, the primary demographic of this church in Ephesus is non-Jewish people, otherwise known as Gentiles. And it's fascinating that he looks at them and he says, don't any longer walk as the Gentiles do. And, and can you just hear him say, saying this? Don't walk the way you used to, but don't walk the way of the world around you. 
There should be some things that are fundamentally different in your life now that you have become a follower of Jesus Christ. He is reminding this church and he's reminding us this morning that the primary identity shaping factor in our lives is not our ethnicity, it is not our upbringing, it is not the city we live in, but it is Jesus Christ. And that's what makes them and what makes us so very different. Don't walk like they do, Paul says. Walk, the word walk that Paul uses has already been used all the way back in chapter 4, verse 1. Remember? Paul has made this shift. He's given us all this doctrine and theology in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, and he shifts gears, and he talks now about how our belief needs to affect our behavior And he begins in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In other words, this whole chapter has been a push towards walking, which is just a metaphor for living your life a certain way. In line with who you are, that's what Paul is emphasizing. In line with the new life that you have been given. In line with your new identity that's found in Jesus Christ. No longer like who you were. We have a distinct way of living as Christians. Or at least we're supposed to. We have a distinct and uncommon set of beliefs. We have a unique way of doing community and living life together. And all of this is because of our devotion to Jesus Christ. This new identity is what shapes every aspect of our lives. And I'm not sure if you've figured this out or not yet, but what we believe is not normal, right? It's not the norm in the world around us. The world around us looks at what we believe and as a result, uh, how we behave, and they think there's something strange about us. They can't process it. They can't quite understand it. They can't fathom why, why we would give our lives over to this man named Jesus Christ and why we would look and live differently because of it. But this makes sense if we understand that the gospel is in and of itself counterintuitive. The gospel is countercultural. It is intended by God to contradict and confront the culture and to call people out of the culture and into a new way of life so it makes sense that the way we live would do the same. If we're no different from those around us, we have nothing unique to say to them. We're no longer a window giving others a glimpse of what they could be, but simply a mirror reflecting back what's already there. And the minute, the minute, the second we lose our distinctiveness is the second that we have nothing to offer the world around us. A number of years ago, I remember coming to meet a group of my friends, and, uh, and it, was, it was dark outside, and I remember kind of sneaking up on them, not intentionally, but kind of they didn't see me coming, and one of my friends turned around, and it rattled them at first, but then he, then he paused, and in the darkness, he couldn't see my face, but he could see the, the shape of my body walking towards them. And he says, oh, I knew it was you because of the way you walked. And that's true in a physical sense, isn't it? That all of us walk in a unique and identifiable way. Most of us, if we know one another well, we can pick each other out simply by the way we walk, our gait, maybe because there's some weird things we do when we walk. Maybe we've had some past injuries that affect and and make it distinct how we walk. Did you know that in the Christian life, we should be identifiable by the way we walk? Spiritually speaking, your life, your Christian walk will either resemble the world around you or it will resemble Jesus Christ within you. So let me ask you as we 
begin our morning in God's word together, are you set apart in the way that you're living your life? Are you easily identifiable in the way you live your life? Would people look at your life and do you even hear maybe from others, unbelievers who are around you, there's something different about you? Do do they see that there's a difference in the way you think? Do they see that there's a difference in the way you speak, in the way you treat your spouse, in the way you treat your children, in the way you work with integrity and discipline and honor? Do they see a massive difference in how you're living your life? We're called to be set apart from the world. But Paul addresses now this question, well, why is the world so different? What is it about the world that makes them so different? And that's what he begins to unfold for us in the next few verses. And really here, what we see Paul doing is unfolding the anatomy of sin. What he unfolds here, he gives us a graphic picture of what life looks like apart from Jesus Christ. What are the identifying factors of somebody who does not know God, does not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Now, I need to say this as a qualifier. What he describes here is this really bleak picture of humanity, and we need to understand that the way this fleshes itself out in people's lives can look very different. There's a spectrum of of how sinful we can be. We've experienced this in our own lives, right? We, we know that we, there are people who commit greater or graver sins than others, and we've been, uh, in our life, committing different kinds of sins that are not always of equal weightiness. And here, Paul lays out what is fundamental, though, principally for every single person who is apart from God and separated from Him. Look what he says about the Gentiles They walk in the futility of their minds in verse 18. Look at what he says. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I want to start in verse 19, and I want to show you how Paul actually links these things together, and essentially he's showing us, kind of in reverse form, how one thing leads to the next, to the next, to the next, but here we can see what is most identifiable about an unbeliever's life in verse 19. He describes the behaviors, the activities, the things that are external that they pursue. In a word, we can define this kind of behavior simply as this, reckless. The anatomy of sin, in one sense, begins with a recklessness, reckless living, unhindered and unhinged. He says in verse 19 that they have become callous. And the sense here of this word is is that of a broken bone that has been healed, and the tissue is formed over the break. It becomes hard and eventually numb to where there's no more feeling, there's no sensitivity I used to have an uncle, I still do have an uncle, who uh, had these just thick farmer hands. He worked with his hands and they're just massive strong hands and they were covered with calluses, you know, thickened skin that had been built up over time. I'll never forget, as kids, he he would catch wasps in the backyard. All the kids would be playing and he'd catch wasps and he'd call us all around him. And then he'd take the wasp and he'd put its stinger right on his fingertip and he'd just let, we'd get to watch as it just stung him over and over and over again in the tip of his finger. And he just sit there and he didn't feel a thing. 
And we're all we're stunned as little kids. We're like, this is crazy. He's just standing there, and he, just, he has no clue because his fingers were so numb, so callous, so built up over time that they were deadened to any kind of sensitivity to the pain. This is what Paul is saying characterizes the life of those who are apart from God. There's an absence of feeling and an insensitivity towards sin and towards God himself, towards God's pursuit even of the sinner. They're so dull and numb because of the reckless living, they cannot even feel or sense God coming after them and convicting them about their sin. They had given themselves up, Paul says, in verse 19. In other words, they had volunteered themselves. And the picture here is like volunteering yourself into enslavement. They they willingly say, I will become a slave to the thing that controls me, to the thing I long for, to the thing I want. It will dominate me, but I willingly give myself up to it. So what is it that they have given themselves up to be slaves to? He says, to sensuality. This isn't speaking strictly of sexuality or sexual promiscuity, although that is certainly included in the sense of what Paul is saying here. But the idea behind this word sensuality is this unrestrained desire, unrestrained passion, and unrestrained longings that will never truly be quenched. There is this need to have what the body wants, to have what the flesh longs for. We get this, right? We see this all around us. We experience this sometimes in our own hearts, this longing to have sin even though we know it is no good for us and it will destroy us. Paul doesn't stop there. He says to every kind of impurity, just the the wholesale abandonment towards the things of the flesh and the things of the world and the things that are are, are opposing God, there is a sense here of pure self-indulgence The motto of the culture back then would be similar to the motto of the culture today and the motto of humanity apart from God. If it feels good, do it. If it tastes good, eat it. If you like it, then take it, and who cares what anybody else thinks? This is about you. This is about your needs. It's about your appetites and your desires. Go and get what you need. And he says they're greedy for this. It's never enough. There's there's more to be had. There's deeper sins to go into, and it's different because I need something else because what I'm pursuing is never truly satisfying. It's leaving me more and more empty. It's carving me out, hollowing me out, and I need more to fill myself up, but it's never doing it. And Paul is making the point here that the reckless living actually is a result of their false beliefs. Did you know that every decision you make, every behavior and action in your life is ultimately a result of what you think and what you believe? It's what we've been seeing throughout the book of Ephesians. This is the paradigm. Belief informs or produces behavior. Doctrine produces duty. And this is what he says about the unbeliever, too. He says, all of this, the end of verse 18, look at it there. We'll work our way backwards, beginning at verse 18 now. He says, due to their hardness of heart. In other words, the hardness of their heart produces this callousness and a reckless kind of living. 
The Greeks had elevated reason above all things. But what you see throughout Paul's writing and throughout all of Scripture is that the Bible elevates the heart. And this is what Paul has already described here in Ephesians as the inner self. Remember in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, I believe it is. Yeah, there it is. He says, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. And then he connects it in verse 17 to the heart so that Christ may dwell in your heart. The inner being and the heart is the same thing. And it's so important to understand this theologically. When the Bible is speaking of the heart, it is encompassing essentially all of who you are. The core of who you are, a mission control center for your life. This is the place where your emotions, your intellect, and your will are all taking place. And what Paul says here is that it's a hard heart that produces a rebellious life. And this is exactly what Jesus says in the Gospels over and over again. Let me just give you one example. Matthew 15, 18 through 19, right on the screen behind me. Jesus says these words, but what comes out of the mouth, this says, proceeds from the heart. So why did I just say that? Because that's what was in your heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Everything you do, everything you think is a product of what's taking place in your heart. You say, how can wrong beliefs be rooted in a hard heart? How is that possible? Simply put, I think it's because we often believe simply what we want to believe. Right? We dig our heels in and we stubbornly believe what we simply want to believe because we think it's most beneficial for us. We think it gets us further down the road. This is one of the most fundamental issues I believe in evangelism, you know, that we don't want to believe in God because it means certain things for us. I find this time and time again, when, when I'm sharing the gospel with people and, uh, and talking to them and thinking through the gospel, oftentimes this is what will happen. Maybe this has happened to you. You, you can walk somebody through the truth of the gospel. You, you, can, you can have somebody intellectually agree with the gospel truths, right? You ever had this where you're saying, like, do, so, so the, here's the gospel, that God loved you and he came to this earth wrapped in flesh in Jesus Christ. That's God came for you. He lived this perfect life and he died on a cross paying for sins. He rose from the grave and defeated sin and death and all who put their faith in him can have life and life eternal. And somebody can say, yeah, I believe that. I, b- I believe in the historical Jesus. I believe actually that, that what you're saying is true. And I'll say, great. So, so you're ready to believe in Jesus. And they'll say, no. Like, what? How is it possible? You just said you believe this is true, but you're not willing to follow Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Like, wh- why not? Like, what, what's wrong? And you know what happens? In these conversations, almost every time, Almost every time, without fail, I will look at the person in the eyes and say, what is stopping you from surrendering your life to Jesus? And without fail, there is usually at least one thing that that person is holding on to that they know that if they follow Jesus, they will have to give this up. And when they're weighing it out in their mind, the sin takes greater precedence than following Jesus. I know, I know 
I know what you're saying is true. I just can't give this up. I know that if I follow Jesus, I can no longer do this. I can no longer live in the sexual immorality that I've been living in. I can no longer party and do drugs like I was doing. I can no longer pursue myself, my own fame, and my own reputation like I've been doing. I can no longer live for me. You know, this is the evangelism tactic that Jesus used, by the way, with the rich young ruler. You remember that? You remember this rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, okay, well, this will be fun. Uh, just uh, do all the commandments. Says, well, which ones? And then he lists them out, do these ones. He's like, I have done all of those from my youth. And Jesus stands there, well done. Just kidding, it doesn't say that in the Bible, but I can imagine Jesus doing it. And then Jesus looks at this rich young ruler who thinks he's been good enough, thinks he's done enough, thinks he's been obedient enough to God. I've done all these commandments. And Jesus, he hones right in on the heart issue and he puts his finger on it and he begins to kind of dig at it a little bit. He looks at the man and he says, okay, there's one thing you haven't done. Sell all that you have and go and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And you know what the man says? The the Bible says, the Bible says the man turned away. Sad, why? Why? Because he had great wealth and he walks away from Jesus. But you see what Jesus was doing? Jesus was pulling out the one thing. He knew the man's idol. He knew what that man loved and the competing affection for that love, which was going to compete with the affection for God. He knew that this man served money. He knew that money had a grip on this man's life and all of his possessions. And he knew, he knew this man couldn't surrender to him because he had surrendered himself to this God instead. And I know there are people who wrestle with what it means to follow Jesus, and I think that's important to do. You've got to count the costs. But this is not just true for unbelievers. Don't we get this in the Christian life, too? Like, don't, don't you feel the tension to this? It's not just that we, we fight with this in giving our life to Jesus Christ, although we do then, but, but it, there is a constant battle in our hearts, isn't there, for our affections? We're constantly being pulled away from loving Jesus most and turning to start loving the things of the world. It's a constant wrestling match between our, our flesh and the Spirit of God that is within us. And there are many times where we don't want to believe what the Bible says about certain things because we know what it will cost us. We don't want to believe what the Bible says about generosity because we don't want to give away our stuff. We don't want to believe what the Bible says about loving our enemies because we simply don't want to. We don't believe what the Bible says about forgiving those who have hurt us because we love to exact vengeance and we love to stay bitter. And in all of this, what Paul is wanting us to to see is that it's our hearts that shape our beliefs and our actions. And I want you to notice here that hardness ends up producing deadness. Look what he says in the middle of verse 18. He says, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And that is due to their hardness of hearts. You see the connection point there? The hardness of heart produces a, a, a deadness, a spiritually speaking, alienated from the life of God, is what Paul says. Hardness toward God leads to a life without God. That is to say, no relationship with God, no access to God, no pr- proximity to God, no presence of God, no joy in God, no satisfaction in God, no purpose in God, nothing. You abandon it all, you leave it all, you can have none of it. They live 
a godless existence, which is perhaps the most accurate description of being dead. I mean, do you realize that to be spiritually dead for all eternity means ultimately, among many other things, it is to live at the very heart of it, a godless existence forever and ever and ever. And and Paul says that this is because of the ignorance that is in them. You see, their alienation is is not innocence. Don't, Don't confuse ignorance with innocence. It's actually a result of their rebellious and direct refusal to acknowledge God and to surrender themselves to Him, to yield themselves to Him. I mean, Paul really lays this out in Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Look at what he says. It'll be on the screen behind me. He says, For his, speaking of God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, catch this, so they are without excuse. Just stop there for a second. God has been revealing himself in all of creation. He's been declaring to all the world, I am real, I exist, I am sovereign, I am king, I am creator. Nothing exists apart or outside of me. And people willingly see this and they reject it and refuse it. So he says, so they're without excuse. The next verse says this, for although they knew God, They knew about him. They could see him. God had made himself known visibly throughout all creation. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But instead, look at this. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, this deadness is a result of their darkness. And that's what Paul says at the beginning of verse 18. He says, they are darkened in their understanding. In Romans 1, the next verse, in verse 22, it says this, claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is what the darkened mind does apart from God. The, The thinking process is so skewed, it's so mixed up. They think, the world thinks they're pursuing enlightenment. The world thinks they're pursuing knowledge and true life giving knowledge, but ultimately it's leading them further and further away from God, not to God. Their thinking process is broken because of sin. It is clouded and it is utterly and completely irrational. God's like, here I am. And they're like, no thanks, I'll just figure this out myself. You know, one of the the, the craziest, I think, and most graphic and vivid depictions of the sinfulness of sin comes from Genesis chapter 19. Remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? In Genesis chapter 18 and 19, it kind of unfolds the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God has this conversation with Abraham, righteous, faithful Abraham, and God comes to Abraham and says, look, it's like, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. This place is so wicked, it is so sinful, I am going to judge them right now. I cannot let this linger any longer. They're so evil. And Abraham goes through, he has this conversation with God, and he pleads with him, God, if there's this many righteous people, would you, would you spare the city? And God said, yeah, if you can find that many righteous people, sure, I'll spare it. And he goes back and forth until God finally says, look it, you can't find enough righteous people in there for me to spare that city, but there's one, a man named Lot, and I'll tell you what, I will spare him, but I will destroy the city. And in chapter 19, it says that God sends two angels 
into Sodom and Gomorrah, right into the city. And as they're walking through the, the gates of the city, there's Lot sitting there. And Lot welcomes them with great hospitality. And he invites them. He talks to them a little bit. They, they were going to stay in the, the, the middle of the city. And he says, no, come and stay with me. Trust me, it's much safer. You don't want to be caught out here in the middle of the city. But all the, 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 the city hears that, that these men have come. And these are angels that, that are now looking like men and, and, and I don't know what that would have looked like, but here's what happens in the story. This place is so wicked. It's so vile. It says that all of the men in the city, all of the men from the least to the greatest, they come after these men and they try to rape them. And Lot gets them into his house and these men are surrounding his house like like ferocious lions trying to get these men out from Lot. And Lot is trying to resist and trying to resist. And finally, these angels strike all of the men in the city blind. Now, if somebody strikes you blind, I would suggest it's a good time to stop what you're doing. Okay, like That's a pretty good indicator. Maybe this is a bad plan. But you want to, just the sinfulness of sin, you want to know what it says these men do? It says that they continue to bang at the door and claw and grope in the darkness, grope until they wear themselves out. That they're so exhausted pursuing their sin that they fall down on their face. But it's amazing that they don't give up, they don't quit, they continue to pursue their sin even in the midst of utter darkness. Really, Paul sums up this problem in verse 17 as he says that they walk in the futility of their minds. So how can, how can people do this? And just listen, if you're saying, like, how can people do this? Just remember, this was once you and me. This was us. This is how we lived apart from God's saving grace. We live for the flesh more, more, more. I want what I want, and I'll do what I have to do to get it, and I'll hide it, I'll conceal it, I'll cover it up, but I'm living for me, and I want the desires of my flesh fulfilled. He says the reason they do this is because they walk in the futility of their minds. That word futility is the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes, the book that is written by the wisest man at the time on earth, Solomon, and the wisest man since Jesus. It says in in the book of Ecclesiastes, he searched high and low for purpose and for meaning and for satisfaction. And after trying women and career and money and power, at the end of it all, he says all of it was futile. It was all meaningless. It was all worthless in the end. And you see, the nature of sin is trying to find meaning apart from the only source of true meaning and purpose. It's trying to find satisfaction and joy and, and purpose apart from the one who gives it alone. And it leads only to a life of darkness, of deadness, of hardness that ends up being totally and completely reckless. You see, this is a really harsh diagnosis. It is, and that's the way that God always lays out the condition of humanity apart from him because he knows that we will never understand how good the good news is until we understand how bad the bad news is. And so here Paul says, look, end the old self and never, never, never go back to that kind of thinking, of behaving, of walking, of living. That was who you were. That is no longer who you are. And that moves us into what is much more happy, I promise you, embrace the new self. Put an end to the the old self, but Paul says now embrace the new self. 
And in verse 20 and 21, he creates this sharp contrast. Look at verse 20. It's so clear how Paul is pressing urgency into this. But this is not the way you learned Christ. This is such an interesting statement. It's, it's unique even in the Bible. This idea of learned Christ, this is not the way you've learned Christ. Paul forcefully reminds us, listen, this is what you say, what does that mean? Paul is forcefully reminding us that Christianity is not primarily about a system of beliefs or principles of morality, but a person named Jesus. This is such an unusual phrase phrase here. Christianity is about, this is Paul's thought process, it's about knowing a living person, Jesus Christ. Commentator Peter O'Brien says this, the phrase to learn a person appears nowhere else in the Bible and to date has not been traced anywhere else to pre-biblical Greek documents. He says Paul is using relational language. You see, when, when you become a Christian, you do not merely learn about the teaching of Jesus, although you do that, you actually develop a relationship with Jesus. But it's interesting here that Paul adds, that's not the way you learned Christ. And then he says this, assuming that you have heard about him. In other words, Paul is writing to a church he hasn't been to in a while, and perhaps even that there are some people in the church who are living, kind of they've gone back to their old way of living, and Paul is looking at them and saying, like, that's not the way you learned Christ. What are you doing? What are you doing living like that? That was who you were. That's, that's not now who you are. And he's reaching back, and, he's, and then he's saying, like, assuming you've actually heard about Christ, assuming you actually know him, assuming you actually have a relationship with him. In other words, if you're not living like you know Christ, maybe it's possible you don't really know Christ. But, but I think Paul is giving them the benefit of the doubt, and he's, and he's assuming that they really do know Christ. But let me just ask you, based on the word of God, as you look at your life, can I just ask you this morning, do you really know Christ? I'm, this is as serious as it gets right now. Listen, you may call yourself a Christian. You may have been doing the church thing for some time, but let me ask you this honestly and answer this honestly in your heart. Do you really know Jesus? Do you really have a relationship with Jesus? Or are you just playing a game? If you don't really know Jesus, listen, and you've been trying to live this life, maybe you've been like, man, I can't figure this out. I can't live this life. Maybe it's possible that you don't know Jesus because it is impossible to live this life without Jesus. The, the life that Paul is talking about begins by being saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It begins with what's called conversion, with, with becoming a new man. This is what Paul is anchoring everything he's saying in. In fact, the language that he uses, it's like he's talking about a reality that's already taken place. In other words, you have died. That is your old self. This is true positionally before God. And you have been made new. You have a new identity in Jesus Christ. This has already happened if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what conversion in one sense is. You see, Christianity is not about being a good person. It's not about going to church. It's not about doing religious things. It's not about merely believing in a God or knowing facts even about Jesus or the Bible. It's about knowing Christ. I read an illustration of, of a little girl 
And you've got to ask yourself this question. I read an illustration of this little girl who went to the doctor's office, and she had to get flu shots and was terrified. And the, the doctor looks at her and says, all right, sweetie, which arm do you want me to give the shot in? And, and she looked at the doctor and said, in mom's arm. <laughs> You know, I think that's the way a lot of us view Christianity. We think we're going to ride on the coattails of somebody else. We think somebody else can do it for us and us receive the benefits, but that's not the way it works. You all are responsible before the living God. One day you will stand before him and he's not going to ask you if your mother or your father or your sister or your brother or your wife or your kids were followers of Christ and if they surrendered to him, they're going to ask you, did you give your life to me? Did you fall on your face before me in humility? Did you repent of your sins and did you believe in my son Jesus Christ? Did you do that? My hope and my prayer is that you can answer right now, today, yes, yes. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Next, he says that they have been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And all of those who are followers of Christ can embrace this about ourselves, that we have been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I just, I want to point out to you that when you kind of package this all together, the, the, the learning Christ and assuming you have heard of Christ and been taught in Christ, you see all of these prepositions that are used to link this kind of thought together. Just, just think about this. In this one sentence, we are seeing that Christ is the teacher, he is the teaching, and he is the place that we are taught. We are taught here in him. Taught in him is the language Paul uses. Everything, in other words, you know about living the Christian life, it comes from the relationship you have to God through Christ. The union that Paul has been laying out in the first three chapters, that relationship aspect. You in him and him in you that makes this new life possible. And it is, he says here, the truth, not a truth, not a partial truth. It is the truth. The truth is in Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Amen? And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and nobody comes to the Father but through me. You find Jesus and you find life. And Paul is anchoring everything he is saying about the old self and the new self around Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus. It is Jesus, 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 Jesus. You never get away from Jesus in the Christian life. You only go deeper into Jesus. I'm gonna say that every single day to the day I die to my own heart and I pray you will be too. Now, Paul wants us to be reminded of what this looks like and what this teaching in Christ and of Christ, about Christ, was. And so he actually reminds them of these truths, this identity in Christ, with this metaphor of taking off and putting on clothes. Did you see that there in verse 22 and 24? He says, to put off, here's the teaching, you were taught in him as the truth in Christ, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
Now, this is really important to see this, this metaphor of putting off and putting on. You see, that the way to change in the Christian life is not to accessorize or to add layers. It is a call for a full wardrobe change. I think a lot of people think that they can kind of keep their old clothes on and just pretty themselves up a little bit. You know, a little spritz of cologne, you know, a nice little jewelry maybe, you know, make themselves look better, but they're still wearing the same clothes. Or you throw a couple layers on, hoping that you can kind of hide the clothes underneath. But here, the picture is a full-on wardrobe change, out with the old and in with the new. I mean, let me just ask you this question, though. I mean, how often do you change your clothes? Please say every day. (laughs) This is really important you get that at least this morning, okay? But you see, the, the first three chapters of Ephesians have described our identity that is received from Christ, not achieved by anything you do. It's based on what God has done for us and who he's made us. Chapter 4 turns this corner and then moves us into this place of now living out this new reality to walk, as verse 1 says, in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So he pulls us back into saying, listen, your clothes have already been changed. Listen, Christian, your clothes have already been changed. Like they are. This is who you are. The old is gone. The new has come. Praise God, right? But now in the Christian life, there is Uh, Kind of an already happened, yes, but a not yet. We are still becoming, practically, who we are positionally. And then the, the daily now putting off of the old and putting on the new is critical for living the kind of life that is pleasing to the Lord and satisfying to our own souls. And that's what we're gonna walk through really quickly here. Look at verse 22. You say, how does this change take place? First, you have to put off the old self. Paul acknowledges the old self still lingers. I I love that about the Bible. When when you look at the Bible, it it is raw, it is real, it doesn't paint some unrealistic picture of the Christian life that often gets us uh, frustrated and set up for failure. He depicts the old man as someone who lingers on and clings to us still, follows us around and tries to draw us back into, as he says here, our former manner of life, the way we used to live, But the question maybe for us is this, what do we do with the old self? I think there are some people who try to ignore the past, pretending that it doesn't affect them at all, try to bury it under a a heap of things in their life. Others are obsessed with their past and they end up becoming enslaved by it. But Paul here teaches us to acknowledge it and to deal with it. You say, but what really is the old self? It's all of 17 through 19. It's all of that thinking, it's all that corruption, it's all of the the, the wickedness of our sinful nature that he has already laid out for us. And by the way, it's not just your past sin, it is, in one sense, your present sinful nature. It's not just who I was, but who I am now apart from Jesus Christ. You can think of it like this, it's the non-Christian version of yourself right now. I mean, just pause for a minute and, and just think, what would I be like today if Jesus hadn't saved me? What would I be like today if Jesus hadn't sanctified me, if Jesus hadn't rescued me, if Jesus hadn't opened my eyes? What would I be like? What kind of life would I be living? What kind of sin would I be practicing? What would I be living for? We get glimpses of this in our lives today, don't we? 
And we, we experience this as Christians. There are moments where we are not drawing near to God and we are living in pride and rebellion and arrogance and God's resisting us and his presence feels far from us and we keep pursuing sin in our lives even though we know it's wrong, even though we know it's rebellion against our Savior. And in those moments, we feel that tension of the Spirit of God within us waging war with our flesh. And sadly, right, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I don't wonder if your experience is much like mine. Sadly, you have plenty of moments in your life where you are sitting back and looking at your life, and you're looking miserably and just a wreck again, and you're saying, wretched man that I am. Lord, how did I get back here? I thought I had dealt with that sin. I said I was never going to do that again. Why, why am I still struggling with this, Lord? And Lord, I, I, I found victory over this, and now I'm struggling with this. Is this ever going to end? I just hate the sin in my life. And sadly, sadly, oftentimes I find myself not hating it enough. You see, the sinful nature is no longer your master, but it is a continual agitator, and it will be until the day you reach glory. And try to pull you back to the good old days when you were in charge of your own life, and just notice how Paul defines this. It's evidenced through desires, deceitful desires that trick you into believing that they are better and more satisfying than Jesus is. And we often hear, like I said in the introduction, that our desires are who we truly are and you need to be true to yourself. And let me just remind you this morning that it is not authentic to act in accordance with your feelings. It is more often than not irresponsible. It's not hypocritical or inauthentic to resist or subdue your desires. That's what we call being responsible and mature. And listen to how Jesus describes the Christian life in Luke 9.23. It says, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross once and follow me. doesn't say that, does it? Daily, there is a need to die to ourselves. Every day, we must wake up and choose this day whom we are going to serve. God, am I going to live in accordance with my new identity, or am I going to be drawn back by deceitful desires in my former manner of life? God, today, and you need to be dead, every day you wake up, you need to get on your knees and on your face before the Lord and say, God, today, this is your day. I am your child. My identity is found in Jesus Christ. And today, I am living for you. But God, I know I cannot do it on my own. I know my struggle, Lord. I know my flesh is strong. I know Satan is tempting me. But God, I know that he who is greater than me is he who is greater than in the world. I know, God, that I can do this with your strength in me, but I can't do it without you, God. Listen, if you pray with that desperation every morning, you watch how the Lord begins to change and grow your life. You watch how you begin to see leaps and bounds in your walk with the Lord as you depend upon him from the waking moments of the day and then repeatedly throughout. Don't trust your desires. Trust Jesus and he will reshape your desires. And this is a great time for self-examination. See, to put off, as, as Paul calls us here to to do is a way of saying to repent and to turn and to recognize and confess that some of the way we've been living our lives has been sinful and dishonoring to the Lord and it's bringing nothing but deadness and destruction. You know, most of us have, have clothes, old clothes that we, we, we like to hang on to. Right? You, you probably have like an old t-shirt, 
you know, it's just, it's ratty, it's faded, it's holes. You got a pair of jeans, you know, that you've been wearing for 15 or 20 years and they got holes in them and they're worn out and they look disgusting. And your wife's like, get rid of those, please. I don't ever want to see them again. All right, it's just me. You know, we put them on because it brings us back to a certain place maybe in our lives or there's a sense of comfort or, or security. My fear that is, is that in the Christian life, some of us have some old clothes we love to run back to and put on. You know those moments when you're, when you're trying to follow Jesus and you're like, ah, oh, this isn't working. Jesus isn't enough for me today. His word isn't enough. Prayer's not working. You know what? I'm gonna go put on my old clothes again because I feel safer here. And this has given me a, a sense of satisfaction that I'm lacking here What part of your life this morning do you keep running back to? Or where are you tempted to run back to for comfort, for safety, for satisfaction? Where is that, that special place for you that you run and hide in and that you are trying to find there what only Jesus can give you? Can you just look at that place and in your heart before the Lord, can you say, Lord, that's not who I am? That part of me is dead. That's not who I am anymore, Lord. I'm a new man or I'm a new woman in Christ Jesus. And by your grace, I'm not going back. But you know, it's not enough simply to stop that. In fact, Paul moves in verse 22 into verse 24, and he says, yes, you've got to put off the old self, but you need to put on the new self actively. And a lot of Christians just stop sin. They try to stop, but they don't replace it. And we're going to see this more next week, so let's quickly look at this. In Christ... Here, we are given an incredible identity, but we fail to put it on. The new self, Paul describes here, is created after the likeness of God. Those beautiful words, they're echoes of Genesis 1 verse 26. You remember when God creates man, he says this, he says, Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God made humanity in his image, but then sin enters the world in the fall and mars and taints that image. But now hear what Paul is saying, is that through Christ, we are recreated. This is creation language. We are recreated into his image. When we put on Christ at the moment of our salvation, we put on a brand new person. And some of you wrestle with this in your identity. What does this mean for, for who I am? Listen, identity in Christ does not obliterate who you are. It brings out who you were truly meant to be. It reorders our identity, our loves, our loyalties, our desires, all around Jesus Christ as our King. And Paul ends in this passage about talking about our, our righteousness and holiness of life. Did you see that? That this idea of this likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, we're growing and maturing and becoming like Jesus. To walk in righteousness and holiness, set apart from sin, living a life that's pleasing to Him in obedience to His word by the power of His Spirit. I love that He doesn't just tell us here to work harder and to be better. You can see how this is about much more than trying harder to be holy and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's about encountering Jesus and having him transform your heart each and every day, your mind, your actions, and your living. All of this comes and is rooted in your identity that you've been given in Jesus Christ, embracing the new self. But the practical change is more than simply putting off and putting on. 
You see, sandwiched in between here, in verse 23, is this concept of being renewed in the spirit of your minds. There is a call to be renewed here. And what you need to know from the language that Paul uses here is that this is not something we do to ourselves. This is something God does in us. And we need a continual renewal of our minds. And the God, God in His grace, when He saves us, gives us His Spirit. And His Spirit takes His Word and washes us and cleanses us and continually makes us new. All of this is about our identity in Jesus. Because through Jesus, we are new creations reflecting the glory of God by living holy, righteous lives as his redeemed image bears. Church, listen, this isn't self-help. This is self-surrender. This is how renewal happens. It's not looking to your inner self. It's not looking even to your best self. It's not even looking to your broken self. It's about looking beyond yourself and looking to Jesus. The goal of the Christian life is like Paul says in Colossians 1, to set your mind on things above, not on things below, where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. That's Paul's way of saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes to Jesus. Get your mind to a place where everything bows the knee to King Jesus. And if you live there, if you live in this place yielded to Jesus because your eyes are constantly there and not on yourself, watch what God begins to do in your life. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says this, your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for Jesus. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Brothers and sisters, we have come to know Christ. And we are new creations. And we have minds that are being renewed by the Spirit of God within us. And because of this change, we are empowered to live out this identity in everyday life. These verses that we've looked at this morning, listen, they are critical because they tell us from where the power to change comes comes from God. We need new hearts, new desires, new minds, and new power. And that is what you have when you come to Jesus. That is what you have, church, listen, when you continually look to Jesus. So let your daily request and pursuit be, just give me Jesus. More Jesus. More Jesus. More Jesus. Father, we pray that you would give us that desire of our heart this morning. God, we want more Jesus. We want more of you. We want our hearts and our minds fixed upon the author and finisher of our faith. We want to be so overwhelmed, not with life and not with circumstances and not with ourselves, but overwhelmed with Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that from the waking moments of our day, to the moment we close our eyes, that you would just give us more Jesus. God, even as we sleep, we pray, God, that our hearts during the day would be so filled with thoughts of Jesus and love and affection for Jesus that we can't help but dream of Jesus. God, may that identity shaping reality control and dictate the way we live our lives and may we find lord that it is so satisfying to our souls because it brings so much glory to you so do this we pray lord 
for the joy of your people, and do it most importantly for the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.